Hey, good morning, guys. What a, what a fun, interesting morning, right? Uh, thank you, those of you who are able to come so that we don't have to preach and sing to a camera. That's really helpful for us, and it's a great morning of worship. Isn't it great to have uh, Dwayne and Jessica mixing with, with us? Yeah, it's great. They're applauding at home, too. We're thankful for you guys. Um, uh, it's great. Um, so, yeah, so we're going we're gonna to continue in our series that we've been in uh, through the book of Genesis so if you've got a Bible, I want to invite you to open it up to Genesis chapter 41 this morning. And it's about, fi- actually, it's not about, it's 57 verses long. So uh, <clears throat> to save your legs, I'm going to read it as we go today. Um, but uh, just at the outset, I'll just, I'll just say this. This week, um, I, I, with the help of a pastor named Vadi Bauckham, I've, I've got a different take on Genesis 41 than I did going into the week. Uh, when I opened this word, I, 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 I had kind of um, maybe like you, kind of predetermined what its meaning would be. And I'm seeing something completely different this week. Um, so um, Genesis 41 is a transformative moment in the life of Joseph. But I don't think it is for the reasons that we think that it is. I think we often think about this story as the answer to all of Joseph's problems when he gets out of prison and goes uh, into the palace, from the, from the pit to the palace, right? Um, but, but what I'm seeing is that, uh, that we often forget something about Joseph's story. When he goes into the palace, when he goes in to be the second ranking official in all of Egypt, Joseph is still a slave. Joseph's still a slave. Could it be possible that many in our world today confuse the freedom that is to be found in Christ with a more palatable form of slavery in this world? Could it be that the God of this world, the enemy himself, our adversary, uses God's gift, God's gifts to blind us to the real treasure that is Christ himself? This is the question that I want us to ask and consider today, because if you're anything like me, you tend to see Genesis 41 as the big payoff in Joseph's life, and we forget that he was still a slave. So um, here's our big idea today of where we are going, is that the covenantal love of God in Christ is the only force strong enough to keep us from being swept away by love for this world. So let's dig in. I got kind of four big headings we're going to look at as we go through the story. Um, Genesis 41, we're going to look at verse 1 here. And the thing I want you to remember is that last week in Genesis chapter 40, um, Joseph um, had had interpreted the dreams of the baker and the cupbearer while he was in prison. And the cupbearer had made a promise to him, right? The promise was that he would tell the Pharaoh about his gift his gifting and being able to interpret dreams and that somehow that would better Joseph's circumstances was the hope. So that's where we pick up. We pick up kind of with this heading that Pharaoh is troubled. And I just said this for us as an application point, lost living should trouble our souls. Living in this world as lost people should trouble our souls. We see that happen in Pharaoh's life. Let's look at the first eight verses here. After two whole years, yes, that's right, two years from when he interpreted the guy's dream before, had passed, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. The Nile is the river that goes through Egypt that brings life to uh, that country. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. 
And behold, there were seven other cows who were ugly and thin. And they came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. So he had his dream, seven cows, plump, you know, good looking, well-fed, seven other cows, you know, ugly, skinny, not well-fed. And so that's where we're at in the dream. And then the ugly cows, I mean, this is truly a nightmare. I mean, this is worse than the Grinch. Um, And then the ugly thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them spouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. And Pharaoh awoke and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, and here's the key, his spirit was troubled. He was in turmoil. The most powerful man in the world was troubled. And he sent and he called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told him his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. So two years pass, Joseph is forgotten. So guys, it's been 13 years since Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers that he's been in prison, whether it or been enslaved, whether it be in Potiphar's house or in this pit. And, uh, and, and Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, has these dreams that trouble his heart. And what we see is that he looks for all the worldly wisdom that he can possibly find to help make sense out of this dream that he's had. Because remember what we said about dreams. And, and the worldview that the Egyptian culture had Dreams were a way to connect with the outside world, with, with, with things that you couldn't see, that you couldn't um, you know, acquire on your own. They, they, were, they were telling a story, kind of the afterlife of a, a connection there. And no one can tell them what these things mean. And so last week we said it would, it would be kind of like having a diagnosis with no prognosis. So that's where the cupbearer and the baker are last week. That's where the Pharaoh is here two years later. And so um, there are these dreams that, they, that have the same meaning, seven skinny cows or evil cows, as the Hebrew calls them, and seven fat cows that, that um, you know, and the ears of grain tell the same story, the dreams with no interpretation, no, no uh, prognosis for the diagnosis. And, you know, I, I just say this, like, like maybe you're in a place today, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, where you're just troubled, your soul is troubled today. Like you're walking in here today or you're watching online and your heart is just in a troubled place. It's in a vulnerable place and you really can't make sense out of what is going on. Maybe you're in here today and you're just kind of running from the Lord. Or maybe you're watching, you're running from the Lord. You've got this secret stuff going on in your life and no one knows about it. And it's just, it's making you at this place where you're in turmoil and inside your heart, your soul is troubled. And I'll just say this. That is a gift from God if your heart is troubled this morning and you're running from him. It is a grace of God that he gives us that he doesn't let us just run away from him without our hearts being troubled. It is an indicator, it is a dashboard light that something in your life has to change. Are you troubled today? Where does your heart go for relief? The Pharaoh was troubled because lost living troubles our souls as it should. Second thing that we see is this, as we kind of dig into this more, is that Joseph is eventually remembered. And that's because the Lord will never forget those that are his. You might run away 
Awful things might happen to you like Joseph, but the Lord doesn't lose any that belong to him is what John 6, tells us. So enter our boy, the chief cupbearer. All of a sudden he has this epiphany two years later, happens to remember Joseph. Let's listen to this. Verse nine, the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. And when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I having a dream with its own interpretation. And there was this young Hebrew. He was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. And we told him, and he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each, each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Okay, so last week, what we said in Genesis chapter 40, what Joseph declared uh, when these guys tried to elevate Joseph's gift, Joseph declared that interpretations belong to the Lord. And last week we said that Christ is the chief interpreter of the circumstances of our lives. That Jesus is the only one who can make sense out of what happens to us in this world because he holds it all in the palm of his hand. Amen? He holds it all. Nothing that touches your life doesn't go through him first. And that is, a great, um, that is a great truth for us to cling to this morning. And so God has spoken to Pharaoh, but Pharaoh does not know God. So he cannot interpret what God has told him because he does not have the key of the Holy Spirit to make sense of what's going on in his life. And so it takes the only God-fearing Hebrew in all of Egypt who knows God and has gifts that God's given him to interpret these dreams that ultimately point to who he is to tell the Pharaoh what his God has said. And Joseph serves as this intermediary between Pharaoh and God. Now, Pharaoh's not a believer, and we have no indication that he or any of these Egyptians are interested in Joseph's God, but only his gifts. Joseph has never, ever, ever been forgotten by God, even after the 13 years that he spent unjustly imprisoned. But God, in his covenantal love, he remembers Joseph and uses him for such a time as this. Think about this, like work with me here. So Joseph is disappointed because two years have passed and he spent two more years, you know, 700 and something days in prison, right? When he was supposed to get out because this dude was supposed to give him a, a favor to tell the Pharaoh about him. If, if Joseph would have been released two years ago, would Pharaoh have had a dream? about a famine that was coming that would ultimately lead to the rescue of the Hebrew people. No, think about this. The timing was God's timing for Joseph to spend two more years in prison so that he could interpret this dream at such a time that he'd be elevated in such a place where he could leverage what God had given to him to, uh, to bestow grace on God's people. It makes me question, it makes me think about the things in my life that I've, that I've thought that God has gotten wrong. Think about your life. Where are the places in your life where you're like, yeah, that, that two years, that didn't need to happen. What are those two, those two empty years for you where you think God got it wrong? What would it look like for you to invite God into the place of interpretation of that for his greater plan in your heart and in your life and in the kingdom of God? Because God doesn't just save us to serve ourselves, right? He saves us so that we might be vessels in his kingdom. That's what he's doing with Joseph. So Joseph interprets these dreams. And I really don't think Genesis 41 is about the dreams, right? I think it's really more about the Lord meeting Joseph and working all things together for the good of Joseph and his kingdom. 
But let me just show you what happens in Genesis 41 here. So the, 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 the seven cows, the ugly or thin, the seven ears of grain, you know, plump or, you know, not, <laughs> they represent seven years. And what, what Joseph interprets through these dreams is that there are going to be seven years of plenty that are going to be followed with seven years of severe famine. The scriptures say that the famine was so severe that they couldn't even recall the years of plenty. That gives you a picture of just how bad that it got in all of the land of Egypt and the surrounding areas. And so Joseph interprets this dream. Pharaoh then, um, is he's, he's open to Joseph's interpretation. He thinks that it's true. And so Joseph then gives him three suggestions. He doesn't put himself, he doesn't assert himself into a place of leadership. Pharaoh does that for him. But he gives him three suggestions, and they're this. Set a wise and discerning man over the land of Egypt. That's the first thing he suggests. The second one is this. Then appoint overseers of the different regions of the land to be able to manage what is happening in the land of Egypt because it is so vast. The third thing is this. Save one-fifth of all of the produce during the years, the seven years of plenty. Create a storehouse for the years of plenty so that when the years of famine come, the Egyptians and the surrounding areas won't go hungry, right? It, it, it makes sense. And so that's where we pick up in verse 37. And it says this, this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? I mean, he's racking his brain. How, how can we do what Joseph's uh, asking us to do here? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are, Joseph. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regard to the throne will I be greater than you. It's kind of that jab right there. Hey, it's going to be good for you, but you're still going to be a slave. Pharaoh notices that, God, that, that Joseph has a relationship with God. Nothing else can explain what he's interpreted, his life, what, the, the history of his walk with God. And so Joseph's covenantal relationship with God um, is used for Pharaoh's own good and for the good of Pharaoh's kingdom. And so he puts, puts him in the best slave position imaginable. Number two ranking man in the land. Now we keep going here. Kind of the third header is this, is that Joseph begins to prosper. And this is what we typically remember about Genesis 41. And I'll just say this as a point of application for us, is that it is difficult to remain faithful when your circumstances prosper. When things are going good, it's really hard to stay faithful with the Lord. When you are desperate and needy and clinging to the Lord because your circumstances bind you in such a place where there's no other option, it's not so hard to follow God in those moments. But when things are going well, it's harder, more difficult to follow God. And Jesus even talks about this in Matthew 19, I think it's verse 33. Uh, he says um, that it is easier for a camel to go through the, the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So if we just want to talk about prosperity, for, about money for a second. Jesus is making a statement. When things are going really, really well for you and you're very, very prosperous, it's really hard to follow Jesus because you have to be needy and desperate to follow Jesus. And money has the illusion that you're not needy and you're not desperate because you can provide for yourselves. And so maybe just keep that in the back of your mind as we look at how Joseph's circumstances prosper. 
you know, so, so far we've talked about the years of pain and the trial and the suffering and how hard it is to stay anchored in our relationship with God through the trial, but few people talk about how difficult it is when things are going well. So Pharaoh calls Joseph up. Joseph then shaves his head and his beard, and what he's doing is he's, he's cleaning himself up to identify with the Egyptian culture. Hebrew culture was you, you wear a big manly beard, right? Right, Dwayne? You wear this big manly beard. And, uh, but Egyptian culture was more clean cut. So Joseph is identifying, he's assimilating, he's embedding himself within Egyptian culture. And, and this is the place that if we don't understand the gospel, that we will wreck this passage because we will make this about us and not about God. This is the place where we could say, uh, let's go be a Joseph and watch God take us from the palace, from the pit to the palace. But, but the, 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 to understand this story in that kind of a circumstantial way would be to miss the gospel in this passage altogether. And the gospel, what I mean when I say gospel is this, is that it's God's work on behalf of sinners that saves us, not anything that we do. And Joseph, the thing we can't forget here is that Joseph is still a slave. He's a rich, powerful slave. And here's how it goes down for Joseph in verse 15, if you're tracking along. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream and there's no one who can interpret it. And, I, and I've heard it said that, that you, when, so this is when Joseph gets up into the palace. He says, I've heard it said that when, of you, when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. So what, what Pharaoh's trying to do is he's trying to elevate Joseph. He's trying to make this thing about Joseph. Go be a Joseph. Listen to what Joseph does though, it's so beautiful. This is how you know that God is alive in this man. Joseph answered Pharaoh, hey, it's not in me. It was never about me, Pharaoh. God, my God, Yahweh, the God of the Jews, will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. He has an opportunity to declare his faith to the most powerful man in the world, and he does it. And he does it. And one of the keys for Joseph and us when it comes to remaining faithful in the years of prosperity and insert whatever prosperity means. Maybe, maybe your kids are all following the Lord. Maybe you've got a great job. Maybe your retirement account looks great. Maybe you've got a nice house. Maybe everyone's healthy. Whatever prosperity means for you today, insert that circumstance in your mind. It's difficult to remain faithful in the years of prosperity because we are tempted to believe the illusion that we are in control of our own lives. Joseph, in this moment, gives us the key to remaining faithful in the years of prosperity. And it's this, it's that we are consistently deflecting the glory back to God. Not in a trite, just verbal manner, oh, praise be to God, but from a heart posture, giving God glory, being a mirror of glory. You see John the baptizer do this in John 3.30, right? So John the baptizer, he's, grow, he's the last prophet before Jesus comes. He has this baptism of repentance and he is baptizing people and people want to elevate him up. And what does he say? He must increase, I must decrease. When it's going well, that has to be the song of the church's heart, church. That we are, we are deflectors of glory. We're reflectors of glory. We are, we are constantly trying to give the glory back to God. Tim Keller uh, says this about, about this kind of mindset. He says, true gospel humility means that I stop connecting every experience every conversation with myself. 
You've been in these places, I've been in these places where you hear a story, somebody's sharing something, and you kind of insert yourself in, you're like, well, well, I've done that, but I was 10 times better, or I went 10 times further, I did, you know, whatever the situation is, and we're all tempted to connect every experience and every conversation with ourselves because we were made for glory. Did you know that? We were made for glory. Colossians, this is in my notes, we're going here. Colossians 127 says this, that it's Christ in you is the hope for glory. So we were made to receive glory, to be the apple of God's eye, to be made in his image, glory himself. And so we're made for this glory and we spend our lives trying to receive this glory, not understanding that we only ever get what our hearts are longing for and we give the glory back to God. That's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Joseph is deflecting the glory back to God. You see, Pharaoh doesn't really care who gets the credit as long as he receives relief from this burdensome dream. But Joseph needs God to get glory in his life. God doesn't need the glory. It's not like God is lacking anything. He doesn't need you to glorify him. He was just fine before he ever made us. God doesn't need the glory, but we need God to get the glory in our lives. The design of God is that we would be mirrors of this glory, this significance, this honor, this weightiness, this worth. He made us for it to give it back to him. This is called worship. That's what that's called. Deflecting glory when the world wants us to take it. Returning it when we're tempted to steal it. Mankind is made to worship and human beings because we're all made in the image of God, will worship. If, you, if you're curious, if you're, you know, you're made in the image of God, obviously, you are a worshiper of something. And as Christians, we worship the one true God through Christ, but we also worship other things in this world. And worship for us, the reason that we corporately come together to gather to worship is we are reminding ourselves that he deserves the glory. And that, and that, and that as, as, John, as John Piper says, you know, that... Um, we are, we are most, um, God is most glorified and we are most satisfied in him. And so for us, whenever, whenever we are finding our deepest satisfaction in Jesus by returning glory and worth back to him, we find our deepest longings met. It's this upside down kind of a kingdom. Because we were made to worship, Pharaoh was made to worship. He tries to worship Joseph because of God's gifts in his life. You and I need God to get the glory in our lives. It's clear here that Joseph in this moment is finding satisfaction in God because he's deflecting the glory that Pharaoh is attempting to bestow upon him and giving it back to him. And this is the true test of worship for all of us. It's not in the suffering that the object of our worship uh, is revealed. It's mostly revealed in the prosperity. Who gets the credit? Who gets the glory when things go well in your life. For Joseph, it's not like, oh yeah, man, I got this dream book. Nobody's ever seen it before. Let me, I'll fix you up real nice, Pharaoh. He can't wait to declare his faith in the one true God. When things are going well in your life, what, what is it that you can't wait to talk about? Joseph, we can't forget, is just as much, much a slave in Genesis 41 as he is in the other two chapters. Listen to verse 41 through 43 here. Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I've set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and he put it on Joseph's hand. 
and he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. So Pharaoh brings him all the way in. I think a lot of times we look at this with kind of like our Hollywood lenses and we say, man, this is like the pinnacle of the story right here. Look at this guy, man. He's got everything. He's the second most powerful man in the world. Guys, Joseph is still a slave. Do you think he'd rather be wandering in the wilderness with his family than this? Absolutely he would. Absolutely he would. But we read this story and we say, oh, things are going great for Joseph. He's still a slave, church. Pharaoh brings him all the way in. He gives him authority over his affairs, similar to how his father did in Israel. Gives him a robe, similar to his father did, right? Gives him his own signet ring, authority to make decisions. He rides only behind Pharaoh in the processional as the constituents of Egypt bow the knee before him and try to worship him. His heart is turning inside out as people try to worship him. But at the end of the day, let us never forget that Joseph is in the wrong land. He's serving the wrong leader of the wrong nation. This is why at the end of Genesis, we'll see when Joseph, when 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 he's preparing to pass away, what does he ask? Get my bones out of Egypt. I don't even want my bones here. Get me out of here. Take them to Canaan, the, the land of the one true God. But it's so easy for us to forget this when Joseph is prospering, isn't it? It's just so easy to skip to the end of the story and remember how God uses Pharaoh more than Pharaoh uses God. In the moments of prosperity of your own life, how is it that you are tempted to steal glory from God? Maybe right now you are. Maybe right now, it, it, when, you, when you talk to other people, you can't wait to connect whatever situation it is back to you. What would it look like for you to return glory to God as we call worship? What would it look like for you to worship God in your prosperity? What, maybe it's with your job, maybe it's with your family, whatever it is for you. What does worship look like for you in the years of prosperity, whatever that means for you today? Because those are the places that we just let the enemy in. We just open the door for him and we allow him to make it all about us. And we steal the, the glory from God when we do that. This is the last point here. And I, this, is, this, is, um, this is, I think, the most significant thing that I wanna look at today is that <clears throat> Joseph's identity is threatened. Joseph's identity is threatened while he's in Egypt. And the application for us is I think we must allow our eternal identity to direct our earthly identity, right? Because as Philippians 3, we're gonna look at in a second, says we're citizens of heaven first and foremost, but we're also citizens of this earth. So what does faithfulness look like in the years of prosperity? So let's look at this kind of random verse here that talks all about Joseph's identity. Genesis 41, 45. I'm going to butcher these names, but you guys know Megan would do it better than me. So here we go. Pharaoh called Joseph's name because remember, Pharaoh owns Joseph. And what you own, you name. Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zapanath Panea. And he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. So Joseph went over, went, went out over the land of Egypt. See, if you're just confident, you just roll with it, right? I mean, nobody knows. But so what is this? We see a bunch of names in this passage, don't we? What do names indicate? 
identity, right? We all have a name. God has a name. Names indicate identity. Now, this isn't the first time somebody has given, someone's been given a new name in the Bible, right? It happened with Abram. It happened with Sarah. Uh, it happened with Jacob, who was Joseph's dad. Now, the difference is that all of these name changes were given to men and women who were moving out of unbelief into becoming true believers, and they were given by God, not another person. So Abram and Sarah, they're called out of the land of Haran to the promised land to be in covenant with the one true God. They get new names. Jacob, he had this long road of being this deceptive and conniving man, right? Just so dirty. Genesis 32, he wrestles with God. God touches his hip. He walks with the limp. He gets a new name, right? Israel, which means struggles with God, right? Striving with God. So this name goes in the opposite direction, doesn't it? He has a Hebrew name, and he's given a pagan name. Joseph's name was originally given to him as Rachel pleaded with God to give them another son. But this name change given to Joseph in Egypt was most certainly given to mask his Hebrew identity, to mask his faith, to mask his God, to make him obey and fall into line with the Pharaoh's wishes, to hide who he really was, to hide his God. Joseph is a slave. Now, this is similar to Daniel, Hannah, and Mishael, and Azariah in the book of Daniel, right? We, what are their names, their Babylonian names? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Um, now, we, we view these names as a very negative thing, right? Why don't we view Jacob's, why don't we view, view Joseph's name change the same way? It's because we're blinded by the prosperity that he has, that we read to the end of the story, we forget that he's still a slave in Genesis 41. Now, on top of this, Joseph is gifted with a pagan wife, and not just a pagan wife, his father-in-law is a priest of a pagan religion, which means his daughter, if he's doing a good job discipling his kids, is a strong pagan believer. She worships a different God. Do you think Joseph wants to be unequally yoked with a pagan? No. No, he doesn't want to be unequally yoked with a pagan. The two couldn't be more different from a faith perspective. It has to be bondage to him. So what does faithfulness look like when you're a slave? I think we begin to see it in his children. We begin to see how Joseph's faith is being flushed out in his children. Verse 50, if you're tracking along with me here. Before the year of famine came, so he's five years in to Egypt, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, bore them to him. And this is the last mention we hear of her, by the way. So it doesn't sound like a, a real solid marriage, right? Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Now the name of his second, he called Ephraim. And this one means, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So the name, this is the thing that you could totally miss here. And this is the beautiful piece about God's word here. The names of his children are not Egyptian names. They are Hebrew names. They are covenantal names. 
naming children in this day was a very, a very big thing, just like for many of us in the room. Um, <clears throat> this is similar to the way that my, my neighbor from Uzbekistan gave his son an American name. He calls him Bob. That's definitely not his Uzbekistani name, right? He didn't want his son to stand out. He didn't want his name to be difficult to pronounce, to look different than his friends. And we have some friends that, that keep their name if they're from a different place. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's the reason why, you know, Jorge or even Juan Tarasis, why they, they, they keep their names. They could be George or John. Because why? Because their names tell part of their identity. Jorge, I asked him if I could say this. Jorge wants us to know that he's from Colombia. It's part of who he is. Names mean something. They're an identity marker. Now, they're not always associated with faith, but in this situation, they are. Joseph intentionally gives his kids names that will be difficult to pronounce to their Egyptian buddies because he's laying hold of the covenantal promise that God is going to rescue his people. He's telling the world who he really is, and I think it's huge. Think about this, from age 17 to 30, Joseph is in Egypt and he's in slavery. Now he's 35 years old and he has, you know, he's got this family, but, but he hasn't got to worship with the family of God back in his homeland. He hasn't got to go to the synagogue or, you know, the temple. Those aren't, those aren't in place yet, but you get what I'm saying. He hasn't got to worship the one true God with his family because he's been the only believer in all of the land of Egypt. And so the first chance he gets to state claim on his identity and his family's identity, he proclaims it with their names. Manasseh, which means forget. Joseph doesn't mean that he's forgotten his family or his brothers. That'll be clear in the coming chapters. But what Joseph means is that he has forgotten the difficulties of the past. That he's not going to be defined by the betrayal that's been perpetrated upon him by his own family and by the Egyptians. He's not gonna be bitter about the sibling rivalry. Instead of giving his son an empty, meaningless name, an Egyptian name that would make it easy to assimilate into the culture of this pagan land, he gives him a name about his true identity as a Hebrew God-fearing young man. And it cuts against the grain with this name. The other boy, his name is Ephraim. That word means fruitful. And this is amazing because at first glance, what we would say is that Egypt made Joseph fruitful, right? That's what we'd say. Oh, because J Joseph found himself in this situation. Now he's fruitful. Now he's fruitful and he can help his family. But, you know, you look at the grain, you look at the wealth, you look at the prestige, but to Joseph, everything is rubbish. It's all meaningless to him compared to his relationship with God. God has made him fruitful in the land of affliction. You know, that's what, that's what that passage talks about is, is, is about is about the land of affliction in verse 52. So, you know, was, was Israel the land of affliction for him? He doesn't, he doesn't look back and see it that way. He, he thinks Egypt is the land of affliction for him. Think about this moment. Think about this moment, okay? So they struggle through the names. You know, they, don't, they know their names are different. They get to be, I don't know, seven to 12 years old. And they begin to realize how different their names are from their buddies, from their friends, right? Joseph sits them down and he starts telling them the story of why their names are what they are. 
And he's working on their Hebrew with them at home at night. Joseph sits them down and he tells them about their great-great-grandfather, Abram, who was met by God when he was running away from God. And God called him into new life. And then he tells them the story about their great-grandfather, Isaac, who was nearly sacrificed because God told him to be willing to sacrifice his only son because he wanted to show us what Jesus is supposed to mean to us. And he tells them that story about Jacob, who was a terrible, terrible man, but God met face to face and he wrestled with them and he changed his name. And even most painful of all, the lack of resolution that exists with his 11 brothers who have sold him into slavery. And he says, this, my sons, is what your name means. Can you imagine the moment that it starts clicking for these boys? Every time someone had to learn how to pronounce their names, something of God's covenant with his people is recalled and proclaimed in the land of Egypt. It's Joseph's identity in the one true God that shields him from trusting in the prosperity and the indulgence of Egypt. You see, Joseph looked forward to Jesus' coming. Jesus is the one who steps in to make us covenantally God's forever. He's the one that brings us into the family of God with his own blood. Before knowing Jesus, we have no power over sin, church. We're in bondage. It just, the world just sweeps us away. Over and over and over again and in different and new ways, especially in the blinding prosperity of our day. Friends, the only way that we can stand in a right relationship with God is through Christ. And our enemy, the God of this world, tempts us to stand on anything but Jesus. Stand on your circumstances. Stand on your career. Stand on your health. Stand on your family. Stand on your success. And I just want to say that we ought to, as the church, have the courage to say that if we're not standing on Christ, it's all Egypt. I don't care how good it looks. No matter how good it seems, if it's not Christ, it's Egypt. And if it's Egypt, it's death. And if it's death, it cannot be the life that God promised us through Christ. Jesus stands to confront, convict, and to save you and me from Egypt. There exists within each of us a desire to place our hope in what we can see and what we can feel and what we can control. And Paul suffered through his own Egyptian self-salvation temptations too. So what is the thing that you find yourself standing on today? What is it that you run back to? Because the world will praise the Egypt in you. Oh man, it'll praise. Just look at any social media feed. The world loves Egypt. The world loves the Egypt in you and wants to drag you into Egypt, taking glory for yourself, not deflecting it in humility back to the one true God. But God, God will not reject us. The world will reject Christ in you, but God will not reject us. Paul had this same struggle. If you've got a Bible, I want you to flip over to Philippians chapter three. And I just want to kind of anchor this moment in God's word from Philippians three. Paul had the same struggle. He had quite the resume. He had a Joseph-like resume. 
He had a lot that he could place his stock in. He had a lot to show for who he had become. He had a lot to stand on and the world knew it. But he learned this gift as he walked with Jesus that he, just like Joseph, had to count all of that blinding prosperity as loss. Philippians 3, starting in verse 7. Paul says this to a church in, in Philippi. He says, whatever gain that I had through my own identity, through my own working, um, through my own ability to make things happen, I had to count as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. So not just count, but count as actually like, like this blinding prosperity of Paul's resume. It was actually a hindrance to knowing God, he said. He had to actually count it as loss, like a negative, like, like in the red, right? I, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It surpasses everything, he says. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, as dung, as excrement, as the Greek says, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having this righteousness of my own that for Paul came from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So in other words, the only thing that counts for anything in me is what I gain by faith, which is Jesus himself, present and powerful in our lives. He says, that's the only thing that counts in my life. That's the only thing I want you to consider. He says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection that we sang about, that I might share in his sufferings, that I might experience some loss with him, becoming like him in his, in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says that when his frame of mind is that everything that doesn't stand on Christ is worthless, there's this imitation of Jesus that we're invited to, right? We're invited to die in Jesus a hopeful death to the things that we thought would make us alive and save us. That we actually see that they were hindrances that carried us away from Christ. And it's in that very place, that very death that we try to avoid with everything inside of us that the power of the resurrection is palpable and it's applied and it's present and it's resurrecting in our own lives. And it's then and only then when the things of the world take their rightful place in our lives, when Egypt stays in the Egypt column, that we can really experience what God has intended for us to experience in this world. And this is the only way that we can have the courage and the strength to deflect glory in our lives. So practically, let me lay in the plane here. You might be asking, okay, a lot of talk about glory. What can we practically implement in our lives today? Well, the good news is Paul was a practical man. So let's read a few more verses and we'll get to that. He says this, brothers, because of all this that he's just said, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. In other words, community is a big deal if you're interested in walking this out. He said, for many of whom I have often told you, and now I even tell you with tears in my eyes, they walk as enemies Notice how he describes the gospel of the cross of Christ. What's the cross mean? Death. They walk as enemies of this lifestyle that says you have to die to yourself. It's the opposite of deflecting the glory back to God. He says their end, and he gives some specifics, is destruction, 
Their God is their, their belly, their, their indulgent, their glories and their shame. And it's because their minds are actually set, they're fixed, they're focused on earthly things. They're focused on Egypt. But our citizenship, brothers and sisters, he says, is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly, you know, deathly bodies, our bodies that, that, that embrace the cross, that embrace the loss, that count all things as rubbish. He will transform that to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Two things, just to close real quick. If you're interested in how to apply this sermon, entrust yourself to people more mature than you and follow the example of Jesus in them. Discipleship is huge in Paul's mind. It should be huge in the church. You can't walk with Jesus alone. You can't avoid Egypt alone. You, you, you cannot expect yourself to walk as a faithful citizen of heaven and earth without the community, the family of God around you. Put people that are more mature than you in your life, put people that are less mature than you in your life and give yourself away is what Paul says. The second thing is this, allow your citizenship in heaven to direct your citizenship on earth. Allow heaven to determine how you live in Egypt. Realize that having eyes fixed on this earth will ultimately make you an enemy of the cross of Christ because he is not of this world. Church, your ultimate citizenship as a believer is in heaven with Jesus, the place where the fullness of his presence resides. And when you're with him, standing on anything else will seem unbearable. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for saving your people from the blinding prosperity of your gifts in this world, Lord. Lord, we just confess this morning that we get so wrapped up in this world because the tide of the world wants us to worship ourselves. Just like Pharaoh even proved with his own heart and his statements that he made to Joseph. But you are so much better. You are so much better than anything in this world. Help us to count everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus our Lord. So Lord, we just want to we just want to take this moment this morning to surrender to you. To surrender our hearts our desires to deflect glory back to you, to see you as the treasure above all else. And so Father, as we receive this table together today, may it be a place of surrender for us. Help us to put down Egypt and pick up Christ more fully today. Help Jesus to come more fully into our hearts and our lives and and to uh, expel the Egypt that resides in the crevices of our hearts and our souls, Lord. We need you, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together, proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. 
If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.